Let's begin this morning with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You that You not only gave us a teaching to aspire to, but You indeed came down in flesh and bone to show us what it's like to live like You. Through Jesus we see not only a standard, but a path. In Jesus we see not only a law, but footsteps. And in Jesus we see not just someone who says what may happen, but someone who has paved the way to eternal life with you. And we are grateful for your Son. We are grateful for your Spirit. We are thankful for you and the ways that you work in this world. We pray that we be your servants this morning and every day as the people of your kingdom. We strive for that example of walking in those footsteps and we just pray for those who lead the way toward you and your Son. We pray, God, you make us the church that we can be in you. Nothing else, nothing else is worth it except to be the church that you made us to be and the people you made us to be, to live the life that you want us to live and to serve you as the only God. We love you, God. We love your Son. And we love that you have done so much for us that we devote our lives to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, some of you know, some of you don't. I just spent the week actually back in uh, Illinois. And uh, my mother and my sister we're moving. Uh, my mom switched houses from the house I grew up into the home, my hometown, quote unquote. My sister and Jack, uh, brother-in-law actually picked up and moved to Tennessee. So um, this is all of us. This is actually a very poignant picture, not because this doesn't happen very often, but then two, because Taylor right there and her husband Jackson is moving. Tara has moved out of the house. Uh, I obviously am here with you wonderful people. Uh, and Trish and mom now live together. We don't know when that's going to, this picture is going to happen again. But uh, I say that to say three things. One, I'm not as sore as I thought I'd be. I think I have an appointment with Roland this week, so I'll find out how sore I am when I go there. <laughs> but then two, um, it was a good week. Not just because uh, of getting to see family and, and to working, but obviously uh, I got to have a, a little bit of the best of both worlds this week. Getting to be with my family and helping, and then coming back here and the first day back, getting to assemble the Lord's people, it's been good. But uh, So yeah, just that's been a little bit of my week, and so just, that's obviously my ugly mug, that's my mom Karen, oldest sister Taylor, Trish, Tara, and then her husband Jackson, and that's their dog Molly, and she didn't be only blood out either, so. Anyway, oh, that's Baxter, that's my mom's dog. So, oh, sorry, I forgot Baxter. <laughs> anyway, so that's what I was doing this week, uh, and I almost want to preface that by saying I got back late last night, so if this sermon doesn't make sense, I'm going to blame it on Satan and tiredness, but I think we'll persevere. We have been looking at, obviously, as we know, the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, we are going to continue into two of, well, the whole sermon is just loaded, as we know, loaded with goodness, loaded with amazing stuff, loaded with hard stuff, loaded with important things, and today we're going to address two really big, huge things in worry and judgment. But just as a recap, we've been looking uh, a little bit uh, at, actually, I'm getting, see, this is what I'm going to blame tiredness on. I forgot the next slide. So I know that's uncommon, but I might do that four or five times a day. <sighs> I got in tired last night. I got in late last night and I'm tired. So I was thinking this morning of just traveling and such, and I was reminded of the story of a man who, at the, uh, he was traveling, he checked in, and, 
and he came across something he'd never seen before. He came across a life insurance policy machine at the airport. And so he decided, you know this one, Mark, it seems like. He decided to take out... Do what? You remember the life insurance machines. There you go. Um, they're not around hardly anymore, but they're still around. Anyway, he came and said, you know what? I'm traveling, and um, you know this would be good to do, good for my family. He had a couple of kids. And so he purchased a life insurance policy there at the airport. Well, there at the airport, there came a, a Chinese restaurant. He said, you know, that sounds really good. And uh, he got very worried at the end of the meal when all of a sudden the Chinese fortune cookie said, um, your investment will pay off very soon. I don't know if I'd fly if that happened. I don't know how much I trust for Chinese fortune cookies, but sometimes. <laughs> My flights went well, but obviously, we're thinking about worry this week, and as Frank's already talked about, traveling's one of those, obviously flying in a plane's one of those, just... All that. I wasn't worried so much yesterday so much as just bored because my six-hour day turned into a 14-hour day. But I thought of this, and that's an obvious one about what people worry about. They worry about traveling. They worry about crashes. They worry about these things. Worry about Chinese fortune cookies, apparently. Uh, but there's more to it than that. It's sometimes the less obvious things in life which tend to draw our trust either towards something or... Towards God. Sometimes it's the less obvious things of life. In all honesty, many people that I've encountered are very comfortable trusting God with some of the big things that are out of our control. Obviously, I'm not flying this plane. We'll see what happens, God. Obviously, I can't control the other drivers. But it's about the day-to-day -day things, which create more worry, it seems, sometimes. It's the day-to-day -day things which we struggle in trusting with God. And it's the day-to-day -day things about not so much even what happens 10 or 20 years ago, but even what happens tomorrow when we're in a stressful situation, when we're in the midst of something that we don't know what to do. Sometimes it's not as plain as a fortune cookie may make it seem to be. But it's important to address. Because, as I talked about last week at the end of last week, we have competing things that want to draw our trust. Competing things that want to draw our focus away. And I talked about last week a little bit about the world's more gospel, about how there are so many things in this world which the world says you need more of to be happy. You need more of to be, um, to be good. More of to have security. Life insurance, for example. Power, trust, authority. Eric talked a little bit about those things this morning in class. The world has a very pronounced and obvious more gospel. I made a statement last week, which did get some feedback, which is good. The fact that the church sometimes has a more gospel too. The things that we put our trust in or the things that we look at as we are successful or not. Even good things like baptisms, church giving, members. Now, I'm not saying any of those things are bad. I'm not saying we should uh, record those. But if we trust in them exclusively to say, yes, we are, an exclusive, we are a successful church, we're doing the same thing that the world does. And we are not doing what Jesus commands, which is to put our trust in Christ's more gospel, which is revolved exclusively around our trust and relationship in God to become more righteous, to become more transformed into Jesus, to be more graceful, to be more Christ-like. That more gospel, nothing else can replace, satisfy, or even come close in eternal value. So with that said, we come to one of the more challenging passages of the Sermon on the Mount. We have talked about last week fasting and how Christ says to not lay up your treasures on earth, but to have treasure in heaven. 
And he says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. Not even Solomon was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire, will he not more, much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Simple, right? Just do that. All right, moving on. (laughs) We know it's not that simple. We pine and worry over the fact that worrying should be easier to not worry. Let's delve into this a wee little bit. This is continuing the line of thought from the previous passages, which is not first and foremost about the details, but first and foremost about challenging you, the listener, first and foremost, Jesus' apostles, his immediate crowd, and then us as the readers, on our perspective, on our focus. That's the main topic, honestly, of all of the Sermon on the Mount. What's your focus? What's your trust? Is your perspective yours or something or someone else's, whether that's bad or whether that's good, meaning God? This is no different. The base lesson is all about what do you focus on. And notice what he says in here. He comments on several things. He talks about food, clothes. These are things which... I don't know how much of us worry about food or clothes, but this is a big deal in the ancient world. Remember, he just prayed the Lord for give us this day our daily bread, which literally means this day and maybe enough for breakfast tomorrow, at most. He talked about early in the Sermon on the Mount about how someone, if someone takes your tunic or their cloak, give them your tunic as well. Well, that was actually illegal for someone to take both things with you because that's a health and safety issue. If you're unclothed against the elements, you could die. These were actually not just trivialities, first and foremost, of the people listening. These were essential things of life, which Jesus was telling them, don't worry about. And remember, this is important that Jesus went through what he's gone through to this point, because if Jesus hadn't been through the temptations and known what it's like to go without food, known what it's like to be isolated by God, known what it's like to not have, not have, it'd be easy for him to say, don't worry about it, and him saying, them saying, well, yeah, easy for you to say, Jesus, you just, look, bread! Jesus has already walked the path that he's teaching, and that's extremely important. Jesus has already walked this path when he says, don't worry about these things. And he talks about our focus. He says, look at the birds. Are you not much more viable than they? Look at the lilies of the field. If that's how God devotes, if that's how much detail and time and attention God devotes to these little lilies of the field, cannot God take care of you as well. It's all about our focus. 
When it comes to worry, this is the second big thing. First of all, that Jesus could is qualified. I don't like that word, but he is able to say these things because he's walked the walk, as it were. The second big point of this is what is worry? And this will come back around in a few minutes, but I want to define worry in a very particular way. This word for worry is a definite word. It doesn't just mean any kind of worry. It means an internal disturbance at the emotional, psychological level. And the key level here, the key level, the key word phrase here is this. An internal disturbance at the emotional and psychological level that disrupts life. Second definition, agitation, disorder, and disturbance. But once again, the implication is that disrupts life. This is the kind of worry in which you stop. Imagine your walk of faith, right? And you see something or you think about something and it causes you to stop. Now, metaphorically speaking, the walk of life, the walk of faith, walking in faith is what you do when you trust God that He will lead you and guide you and provide for you, right? So therefore, when you stop, purposely and plant your feet and go, well, that's the future. I ain't going any further. This is the type of worry, in a sense, that this sermon is talking about. Worry that causes you to stop. Worry that disrupts life. Translated to modern era. Worry that keeps you up at night. Worry that causes you to be emotionally and psychologically angsty or even sick. This type of worry. We have these type of worries. Maybe not about food and clothes, but we have these type of worries all too often. The implication of Jesus saying birds and lilies is a couple things. One, their abundance, but then two, the fact that it's obvious that you who are made in God's image, you who are made in the very image of God, you who are direct descendant in the sense of Adam, the creation of the world, the steward of the world, you are much more viable. As wonderful as a bird is, you're more viable than that. No offense to any birds. But you're more viable than flowers. You're more viable than that which comes today and then gets thrown away into the fire the next day. Maybe your physical life on earth is temporal, but that which you are, the essence of who you are, is eternal. And God says, I would not create something without the intent of taking care of it. I would not create something without the intent of providing for it in some way, shape, or form. Jesus is creating a contrast with that, which obviously you look out. I wouldn't put it past Jesus to all of a sudden a, a bird flew by. Or in fact, on the hill, he saw a lily in the field yonder and drew directly from his surroundings and saying, aren't you more viable than these things around you? The answer is a resounding yes. The key here, third key more or less, is not about anything that comes before, but it's about what Jesus says to focus on. He says to do what? Seek first what? The kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all of these things will be added unto you. What is that? We've talked about a couple of things. God's kingdom, God's kingdom is obviously the people um, that have been called according to His purpose, the people that follow Him, His representatives, His citizens on earth. Righteousness is having a relationship, a right relationship with God. What this comes down to, in a sense, is Jesus is saying to follow God's will. Now, what's important here to realize is God's will is not just, is not a blueprint. It's not something where you're tightroping along and you went, ah, oh no, I fell off God's will and bad things are happening. In fact, all four or five instances of God's will in the New Testament, which is in Romans, Thessalonians, uh, and Hebrews, they don't talk about specific 
circumstances at all. But they do talk about a way of living. Think about 1 Thessalonians 5, when it says, Give praise in all circumstances. Give thanks always, for this is God's will for you. Abstain from sexual morality. Be at peace with one another. Abstain from all appearance of evil. This is God's will. Not a blueprint that you walk along and you fall on and off. Or you go astray and then you come back and, nope, i got to stay on the right... It's not God's will. God's will is a way of living. A way of living within God's kingdom in righteousness with God that reflects Jesus and God's image on you. That's important. (laughs) From this, then, we see the two elements of the kingdom itself. We see that God's kingdom is bringing the now but not yet, bringing the future kingdom into the now. Being a people that... We'll take the context here. Being a people that worship God in the right ways, worship God with the right motives and intention. Being the people that don't lay up temporary things for themselves. The people that pray to God, that give, that that will have no need for things like divorce and swearing oaths and retaliation and, and love will be abundant. The whole Sermon on the Mount is coming to a head here when it talks about God's kingdom because it's bringing the ultimate putting things right into the now, or at least that's the goal. But also in living righteously, we talk about what it means to live within the very kingdom of God itself. This is bringing in both looking what, what we're looking forward to and why we're living now, but also includes every decision we make every day. So when he says, do not worry, he's talking less about the other things around you. And he's talking more about this fact that kingdom living, that kingdom life, kingdom righteousness, righteousness needs one's full attention each and every day. I was very tempted to put each and every hour, minute, second. But I figured day would get it across. This is bringing in what Jesus will talk about later in Matthew, which is to pick up your cross daily and follow me. For some of us, we need to pick up our cross hourly or daily or even every second. This is talking about the focus of our lives, the focus of everything that makes up our lives. And Jesus is making the point that says anything that disrupts our attention to kingdom living in the moment Everything that disrupts our attention by living out the Lord's Prayer, God and others, falls under this category as worry, which is taking our focus off of what we know to be true. Taking our focus off of that, which is kingdom living in right relationship with God. We know this to be true, that living for God does take a lot of attention. Or rather, I might say, intention. And we just know how, we, unfortunately, many of us know how easy it is to let that attention slip. So, here's the thing. Fourth big point with this, I guess. You have to keep in mind who Jesus is talking to. And there is an assumption here that he brings that he doesn't specifically lay out. He's talking to his apostles and his disciples who do have things. Because the questions from this, obviously, are a lot. (laughs) Here's three. Well, Jesus says, don't worry about what you eat or drink. What about the poor who don't have things? What about stress of life? What about the things that do stress us out? What about just focusing on life life tasks? Is this saying that we shouldn't have concern or we shouldn't have feelings or shouldn't have these? It's not saying any of that. The poor 
are addressed in multiple other areas. And there are exceptions. There are times in life where things happen beyond your control which you do need help and which, yes, sometimes in order to not worry about anything else, in order to focus on God's kingdom, yes, you need to worry, meaning focus on surviving, being warm, it's my opinion that this is not who Jesus is talking to. Old Testament and New Testament address the poor and charity and detail in other places. He is talking to people who do have these things. And he's talking to people that since you have these things, if you have what the Lord's Prayer in essence gives you each and every day, everything else. There are exceptions. There are other things. But that's not who Jesus is talking to. It's unfair for Jesus to say, don't worry about what you will eat to someone who has not eaten in a week. And in fact, one may argue, that's the whole point of why living kingdomly matters, because whose job is it to feed those people? Whose job is it to make sure that those people have what they need, those who cannot help themselves? What about stress and life tasks? You remember in the garden... Jesus was whistling and skipping along and saying, I'm about to go to the cross and it's going to be awesome. See you guys. Right? Jesus had stress. Stress in itself is not bad. Well, there are bad signs of stresses. But the fact that we deal with it is human. I don't think this is talking about just the daily stresses of life having concern over things like finances or kids' educations or for dinner that night. We have concerns and we have things that do stress us out sometimes, the things that you know impact our emotions. I don't think this is what this is talking about because otherwise it would basically say, don't live life. <laughs> Jesus had stress anyway. Jesus were not worried, but he talked about and addressed certain things in his life that just comes from daily living. So this is not talking about those who absolutely have nothing. It's talking about those who have what they need to live. And they're not, he's, not, he bleh, he's not talking about the stresses of life or the daily concerns of life. In fact, other places in Scripture say the stewardships that you have, the stewardships of your house, the stewardship of your finances, the stewardship of your family, those are worth focusing on. God has given you those things, and to be a bad steward of those things impacts your righteousness and your, and your kingdom life. I didn't put this up here, but he's also not saying that if you are stressed beyond where you can handle, that it's you not having enough faith. Meaning that I believe counseling, therapists and counselors are gifts from God, and they're okay to be used. Not every problem that we have in our lives is a spiritual problem at least exclusively. Counseling for things that we can't overcome, learning how to deal with the things of life better, so that way we can focus on the right things in the kingdom, those are okay. This text does not say, and I've heard sermons like this, if you worry, you don't have faith. The text is saying, if you worry to the point that it disrupts your life and you do nothing about it, and it continues to disrupt your life and you're never able to focus on the kingdom again, that's the type of worry that Jesus is talking about. Talking about those who freeze 
who don't do anything or let themselves, and that's the key word, let themselves become so consumed that they can never focus on kingdom life ever again, but only the things of this world. That's still a high standard. But hopefully it's one that we can see that in faith and with the tools that we have is attainable. So since we're on this one, and we're looking <laughs> at one huge thing, let's go to another one that also is very much about our focus. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious about itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I read that all the time when I just go, Amen. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about the fact of dealing with what's in front of you, dealing with your problems, addressing them in faith, and moving on and walking in faith. Part of that, then, is what to do about this verse. Judge not. Do not judge. Or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite! Take first the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Indeed, some of the things that we worry about is being judged or judging others, and not just doing it, but what on earth does this mean? <laughs> well, there's a couple important things to take from this right away. The previous pericope, the previous past about worry, was about what we focus on. This one expands that a little bit to the entire perspective of God. And that's important because let me ask you, whenever Jesus is teaching, judge not that you not be judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will, bleh, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Whose perspective is he talking about those who are doing the judging? He's talking about God's perspective on all of us. Perspective is important. And to have the right perspective matters in many parts of life, including kingdom life. I came across in South Dakota... Here's the video, Caleb, so get ready for it. There is a man named Dick Termis, and he creates things called termospheres. Have you, anyone in here ever heard of that before? Oh, good. <laughs> he lives right in South Dakota. I've actually been, we drove right by his house all the time. And uh, when it talks about perspective, this is a little break in some heavy stuff, but also this is a neat little thing about having a different perspective. This is a two, two and a half minute video. Enjoy the perspective. If the sound comes on. Welcome. Come on in. I'm Dick Termas, and I created all of this stuff. For over 50 years, I've been doing spherical paintings. I do very realistic work, like this one shows, of Saint-Denis in northern Paris. I stood in the center of the cathedral and turned in a circle. This is what, what I 
ended up creating from that experience. So let me just tip it here so you can see this is everything above you and this is everything below you to give you the, the sensation of it like floating and you're just looking at this whole environment all the way around you. This is another more geometrical piece up here. It's called square dance. And it's playing with a geometry of a square that shrinks and turns slightly and creates these spirals. I started with six squares, like a cube put on the ball, and then a rhythms of squares within each square, as it goes in, will create uh, these four spirals that come out of it. You know, sometimes the realism turns into fantasy realism, like this one where I played, made up a cathedral and played with gargoyles kind of floating around in, inside there like they've taken over or something. And I play with a six-point perspective is how I get all of this stuff to fit accurately from any way you look. In my system of perspective, if this is north, south is on the back side. So all of these are reverse thinking. When you look at the spheres, you're actually uh, conceptually inside the sphere looking at this. So if you're inside the sphere and this was a north direction, south would be back here, east would be over here, west over here, everything above you there, and everything below you there. Most That was my fault, sorry. <laughs> so do you get that six-point perspective, that he's taking everything into a sphere, you look on the outside. I still don't quite understand it. All I know is that it looks pretty, pretty cool. <laughs> but every time I think of perspective now, having actually been there and actually seeing um, all those things, I think of the importance of perspective because I wouldn't know where to begin to draw, to paint a circle painting. Not just a circle painting, but a spherical painting. Actually, later on in the video, I cut it, do you remember the video, uh, the painting of the guy, I can't remember what it's called, someone else helped me out, who's more cultured than I am. It's the painting of a man holding up a uh, reflective sphere and he paints the perspective of warped dimensions. He actually has a painting from the sphere's perspective that he has on a sphere. So he's looking out at the guy and it's crazy. See, we can understand that as far as why you need a different perspective in order to make that work. And I show that to make the case that we also need a different perspective, a wholly different perspective, to make not only kingdom work, kingdom living work, but Christian life work, but particularly to apply this section correctly. The important thing about this perspective, in this section, judge not that you be not judged, is that he's talking about don't do that, from your perspective to others. Scripture is God's perspective on us, not God's perspective on others. Let me put this another way. Whenever it applies that there are things that we talk about and we want to go, yes, I know someone like that. Yes, I know someone like that. Oh yeah, this person really needs that. Scripture's case is that you need it first. The thing is, for those of us 
who read, hopefully, and engage and get inside Scripture, we begin to take on God's perspective on things like sin, like the world. But it's important to realize that when he's talking about judge not, lest you be judged, this is talking about God's perspective on all of us, not just God's perspective on someone else. Why does that matter? Because when we're talking about judging from God's perspective, there are a couple different kinds of it. We're talking about, one, moral discernment versus personal condemnation. What's the difference here? Well, hopefully this is more obvious. But when you talk about moral discernment, what are the things we're talking about? We're talking about this is good, that is bad, that is sin, that is not. This makes me more like God, this makes me not like God. C.S. Lewis, I talk about all the time, says people are on two different paths, either a path to make themselves the center of their life or God the center of their life. Moral discernment is integral to that. We need to be able to judge and discern what is good, what is bad, what will help me, what won't help me, what will help you and won't help you. What none of us are qualified to do is to say to someone else, anyone else, you are lost, you are condemned. Now, some of us may say, well, some are pretty obvious. You are not qualified to make that judgment. You're not. Neither am I. You are qualified to say, there are things in your life which I can see from my experience, which are good, which are bad, which lead you towards God, which lead you not. None of us are qualified to say to anyone else in this world, you are absolutely lost, you are absolutely condemned. Why does this matter? Because to say that to someone oftentimes takes away the integral component of judgment, which is reconciliation. Let's put this another way. This is telling us to become self-aware of our state before God so that we can have an other's awareness out of not God's perspective and not out of being bigger than we ought to be, but a self-awareness out of our own self-judgment. Meaning, I know what I need. I know how I stand before God. I know how inferior I am before God in His moral judgment. Let me walk with you in order that, as God has helped me, I may help you. Not to say, I'm good. You're lost, Lois. See ya. Just, you're sitting there. I didn't, you know, nothing else. You just happen to be close. Frank. <laughs> Let me put this another way. Judging by vocally or viscerally discerning, and what I mean by that is telling someone in a condemning way, telling someone over Facebook, telling someone over social media, judging in a personally condemning way is worthless without pursuing both sanctification and reconciliation. Let me say that again. Judging anyone in their personal condemning way is worthless. Well, it shouldn't be done anyway, but judging it all is worthless without pursuing both sanctification and reconciliation. Why is that important? When we morally discern one another, the point is to help each other become more moral, more like God. When we simply judge each other as God may, it's simply pronouncing judgment as opposed to reacting and walking together out of a shared judgment. Does that make sense? This is uber important. Does that make sense? Put one more way. Self-awareness of our state before God and what we need leading to others' awareness that others need just one of those days. I cannot win. 
Self-awareness leading to others' awareness is that others need what we need from God as well. Meaning, if you have ever struggled with any sin in your life, which if you're breathing, you have, and if you're not breathing, you did, you need to be aware that this is God's perspective on us. Therefore, all of us are under the judgment of God. All of us are in need of grace and mercy. All of us are in need of Christ. Therefore, we judge in pursuit of that for each other, out of that of ourselves, in order that we may bring each other to Christ. Never to simply pronounce judgment on anyone else, but to judge and to hopefully, with God's help, lead them through the Spirit to salvation. So this is what judging means. This is what it means to take the plank out of your own eye. Be self-aware. How can you see clearly take the speck out of your brother's eye if you don't deal with what's in front of you? Self-awareness. Self-awareness of your state before God, before Christ, and now. And any judging, meaning discerning, that you do must be from that perspective to bring the other person to God. Never to be God to them. And I read Facebook. There's a lot of that. Nowhere else does this come to a point, I think, than in John 8. There's a woman caught in adultery, and it's a setup. We know this because where's the dude? He gets off scot-free as far as we know. But there's a woman who's thrown, theoretically it seems, from the act into an area of people and Everyone is saying, this woman is an adulterer, and adultery was punishable by death. What in your life can you imagine doing that all of a sudden, if someone sees you, you will be grabbed, thrown out into public, and stoned to death? This is what this meant. Now look at Jesus. What are you going to do about this? He bends down and starts to write draw on the sand. We don't know what he drew. Maybe he was writing a hymn or a psalm. Maybe he was writing you hypocrite. Maybe he was writing grace-filled people can do amazing things. But regardless, what does he say? Ye without sin cast the first stone. Meaning, if you are to condemn this woman, let ye who has never been condemned before God do the condemning. They all leave. And the woman says, Do not judge me. Or, you know, has no one condemned me? He says, Neither do I condemn you. And then he says, Don't do it again. Judgment to reconciliation, never condemnation. The question is I have for you, which I don't know if I have a slide for it. I don't. <laughs> ah, go back. There's two things. What in our lives threatened to take our focus off of God that we are so tempted to worry about and the second thing is, how can we help judge ourselves as well as each other? Not to say, that's horrible, you stink, do better. 
but help judge each other so that our focus each and every day can be on God and His kingdom. That's one of the points of the church, not just to come here and hear someone talk about it, but to help each of us live it day by day, COVID or not, because we all need it. Heavenly Father, these things that we talk about are big and hard, but in your power are doable. May your power shine in us. May our focus on you be immovable. That yes, as we deal with the stresses and worries of life, that you may help us to focus on that which is immovable and never will call us, call us stress and worry, which is your salvation. Help us to be the proper judges of that which we can and never which we should not judge, that we may bring the world a little closer to you each day. Help us to live out this whole Sermon on the Mount, God, the whole picture of what it means to be like you. And even though it is daunting, with you, all things are possible. We trust you with this, God, and pray that you work in us in Jesus' name. Amen.